0: Welcome to Drop Everything, podcast number 13. I am your host, as always, Dan Holzman. In this podcast, we talk to Australian comedy juggler James Buster about working on cruise ships, learning his trade in Australian circus schools, and even performing on Australia's Got Talent. Before we get to that, though, let's thank our sponsor, the International Jugglers Association. Information about this great group can be found at juggle.org. Join the greatest group of jugglers in the world, join the IJA, go to their website at juggle.org. Also, a big thanks to my engineer for this podcast and every podcast, my wife, the lovely and talented Karen Holzman. Now sit back, drop everything, and enjoy this conversation with Australian comedy juggler James Buster. Welcome to the Drop Everything podcast, juggling comedy superstar all the way from Australia, James Buster. How are you doing out there in Australia, James? Good, thank you. Now, James, please sum up the, the Buster experience, if you can, in one sentence. What is your What is your show? How would you describe it in one sentence? Uh, hilarious antics and mayhem, and just a whole bunch of ran, randomness. So you don't really bill yourself as a comedy juggler. Do you find that there's some anti-juggler sentiment out there in Australia?
1: I don't find that there is, no, not at all. I just find that it's a better way of marketing myself, and I'm kind of at the, at currently changing all of my marketing to what I just said, because then it's a surprise element when people book you. And as you know, as a juggler, like the whole show is not juggling. It's more comedy than it is juggling.
0: So you feel it gives you a more of an open playing field so you can kind of combine other elements and not just the juggling.
1: Yeah, no, totally. It just, it just makes it more, gives me more freedom. So let's talk a little bit about your background. Uh, where were you born, James? Uh, I was born in England. England, but did you grow up in Australia? No, I grew up in the UK, and then I moved to Australia when I was 11. What, what did your parents do that you moved from UK to Australia? Our dad was an accountant, and he picked up a job at a big company over here. I can't even remember the name of the company. But uh, yeah, he picked up a big uh, job over here, and so we relocated the whole family.
0: Was there any circus or entertainment in your background? No, none whatsoever. And you, brothers and sisters?
1: sisters. Uh, two sisters. Did they did they go into show business or have they gone into something else? Uh, no, they went into, one of them is an occupational therapist and the other one is a marketing director.
0: So when did you become first aware of this wonderful thing called juggling?
1: Uh, when I was brought up in the UK, we had a theme park that was just around the corner from us where we would uh, get a yearly pass so we could go all the time and they had a permanent circus there. And I'd always kind of pull my parents' legs to let me go and watch the circus because I was always interested in being a clown or something like that. And then from there, the interest in juggling and also in magic in the early stages of my life came about. At what age did you learn to juggle? And who did someone uh, teach you? Did you
0: learn from a book? How, how did you do that?
1: I, I learned to juggle when I was 11. And I learned off uh, dial-up internet where you looked at the gif image and it was just moving really really slowly <laughs> so so back in the dark ages what what uh, what year was that whatever 28 minus 11 is
0: okay uh, ni- 97 i think 1907 wow my, my math is way up. <laughs> so about 11 years ago so you started juggling 11 years ago no i started juggling 17 years ago 17 years ago and you're you're 28 now
1: Yeah, yeah, that's the correct math. I've worked it out eventually. There you go. There we go.
0: So you learned at 11, and as soon as you started to juggle, was there sort of this eureka moment that you felt like, wow, I've found something?
1: No, even from the start, it was just, it was a passion. Like, I never saw it as being a career. It was just something that I was really interested in, but in the end, that's the best career to have. Yeah, to follow a passion is something you didn't get into for the money, obviously, but just
0: something you enjoyed doing.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. I don't, I don't think anyone goes into juggling for the money. Do you think it's for the groupies?
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, for, <laughs> and, so the, and the prestige, maybe. <laughs> maybe and the prestige. These early days of juggling, were, did you have any inspiration? Did you see other jugglers or was it pretty much self-taught?
1: Pretty much self-taught. It was more that I, uh, like I said, I just had that passion for going and watching clowns and watching juggling when I was younger. And that's where I kind of got that passion from and in terms of seeing other jugglers i didn't really see that many apart from within that circus so yeah then it was all self-taught after that
0: and were there any early performing experiences or was this something you just did for your own entertainment
1: uh the juggling side was just really for my own entertainment but i've i heard stories from my family where we'd kind of go to parties and stuff and i would be found doing magic tricks in the middle of a group of old ladies and just so you were
0: attracted to the entertainment side of it. Did you consider yourself sort of the life of the party type of character?
1: No, I was actually a really shy uh, kid. So it just, again, it's something that's just evolved and I kind of, cause I eventually realized I had a passion to do it in my life. I think I just kind of found that confidence.
0: So once you discovered that it was a passion and you decided you wanted to go further with the juggling and performing, how did you proceed?
1: Uh, Well, basically, I went to a private school in Sydney. And then when you're 14 at school, you get the opportunity to do work experience. And so I went and did work experience at uh, the Bell Shakespeare Company, which was a a theatre group. I went to Channel 9 and worked for Channel 9 TV station over here for a week. And then I found a circus online that I'd ridden to that I asked to go there for work experience. Um, I turned up at the circus school, which is in Albury, Wodonga. And I found out that it was all kids about my age running around and doing circus tricks. And from that point on, I was in heaven and realized that's what I wanted to do with my life. And I basically ran away from home. So how far was that from your home? And did you did you live there at that time? Did you move away
0: from your home to be at the circus school?
1: Yeah, basically, I went there to do work experience for a week. And two weeks after I got home, I was enrolled in the circus. And uh, Aubrey Wodonga is about six hours from Sydney. So you're
0: about 14 years old. And did your parents, uh, were they hesitant about allowing you to move away at that point and basically join the circus?
1: I think anyone would be hesitant, especially like dad being an accountant, mum being a schoolteacher. But the biggest thing was that when I moved from the UK to Australia, I was like a target for bullies. I was tall, skinny, lanky. I had a lisp and a really strong Geordie accent. So I kind of got bullied a lot. And so they saw that I wasn't really happy in normal school. And when they saw how happy I was at the circus, I think it was sold. I mean, they made me work for it, but Mm -hmm. so they should for such a big decision like that at a young age. And how do you
0: think your early experiences of being bullied shaped your life? Did that sort of give you a different perspective
1: growing up? Yeah, it did. And I think that's where, in a way, like I said, how I I was shy and things like that when I was younger and now I kind of grew confidence is that. The confidence came from the fact that I realized that I don't really care what other people think of me Um, at that stage in my life. It was just more that I'm doing something that I enjoy and juggling was the thing or juggling in circus in general was the thing that made me happy. And what was the experience at circus school like? Could you describe kind of a a basic day at the circus school? Yeah, sure. So basically... uh, The Flying Fruit Fly Circus is the only circus school for school-aged children in Australia in terms of uh, it's a selective school. So there's 10 people in every year, and it goes from year three to year 12. And so basically a normal school day would be that I go to school. We do school education, but it's all condensed down a lot compared to normal schooling. Mm -hmm. So when we learn, we learn quickly. And then PE, I'm not sure what you call it in America, whether Uh, it's called PE. We call it PE as well. Yeah. Uh, PE is cancelled out and PE basically becomes circus. So within a normal school day, you do normal schooling for, say, three hours. Then you do circus for two hours during school hours. And then you do two and a half hours of circus after school every day of the week.
0: So by, by circus, are you saying you're learning a lot of other skills in addition to the juggling?
1: yeah so I learned to do flying trapeze, walk on tight wires, do unicycling every kind of manipulation activity, just the whole spectrum of it and the aim with them doing that is so that you can do everything and then kind of choose your majors like you would at university.
0: now is this still an ongoing program? Can people in Australia today join the the uh, flying fruit circus?
1: yeah no every the flying fruit fly circus is yeah, it's still going. It's running very strong now. So they're touring Australia all the time.
0: Oh, so it's also a touring circus as well as a school.
1: Yeah. So it, it, if we, when I was in circus school, we went to China, we went to Japan, we toured Australia. So, I mean, in terms of kids, it's great. You get to <laughs> run around like clowns and then miss school as well. So. And how, how long is the overall program? What, what age did you graduate? Uh, year 12. So I graduated when I was
0: 18. Wow. So you had like three or four years of pretty, pretty, since pretty serious uh, circus education before you started your career. Yeah, no, totally. And also you had a lot of performing experience because you had to tour with a professional circus.
1: Yeah. And also while I was there, I was kind of uh, working off my own bat, if that's an expression. And I was going out and starting to do street performing as soon as I got there to try and make some money on the side. So I was doing little festivals and things around the area. Performing as Buster Juggler. Yeah, I was doing shows as well as doing shows within the circus.
0: At that point, did you run into other performing jugglers? And if so, how did they sort of inspire
1: you? Uh, Yeah, no, I did. I mean, obviously, there were other kids that could juggle within the circus school. But the big name that quite a few people know, who um, I had lots to do with, was Earl Shatford, uh, who's a juggler based in Melbourne, who now teaches a circus school in Melbourne, which is the circus university course that you can do now. And when you
0: started out did you think about being a a technical juggler or did you always have a desire to be a comedy talking juggler
1: That's a really interesting question because I never really had a, a a plan as such I think to be honest the answer would be that I wanted to be the best juggler in the world I think as lots of us do when we when we learn but then I kind of got to the stage where people would laugh at me. And like I said, when I was bullied, that was a negative, but I wanted to try and change that negative into a positive. That's how the comedy bit came about. Cause I realized, okay, look, I am like skinny. I am tall. So why don't I make fun of that?
0: So there was a natural humor to your appearance and to what you were doing. So people gravitated towards you humorously anyways. Yes, very much, yeah. What were your sort of high points as a technical juggler? Did you achieve five clubs, seven balls? What was sort of the peak of your juggling skill?
1: At the peak of my juggling skill is basically where I'm. I'm still at at the moment. I mean, I will admit that my my practice has decreased, but that's only because of the fact that I'm I'm always away and working. The most balls I ever got when I was in circus school was I, I could flash eight. I mean, in the show now, I still run five clubs and run seven balls.
0: So, what was a, a daily practice like? How many hours a day did you practice primarily juggling?
1: about three hours i'd probably say out of it all because like i said when you get to this certain stage within circus school where you realize what you want to do the trainers realize that you want to be a juggler then the majority of your hours are put towards that and then i'd only have like half an hour on handstands or half an hour on tight wire for instance
0: and did you specialize sort of in the standard props the the balls rings and clubs or did you also include diablos and devil sticks and stuff like that
1: I tried to learn everything because I believe that it's always good to have diverse skills. But balls and clubs were definitely my cup of tea. Uh, Rings—I uh, think I could juggle five rings, but they just hurt my hands too much, and I don't like pain. I never a big ring fan myself. They always <laughs> would uh,
0: crack that area between the thumb and that first finger. Yeah, I never developed the uh, the calluses necessary or the or the pain tolerance to really enjoy ring juggling. So I'm with you there. Yeah. <laughs> so when you left the, the circus school and you'd already been doing some solo work on the streets. And when you're on the streets, what, what, uh, what pitches were you working then in Australia? Or were they just mainly
1: festivals? Uh, no, the, when, I, when I was within circus school and kind of doing work on the side, I was working just at festivals and on, on street corners with a, with a hat in front of me. But then when I left circus school, then I moved back to Sydney. And I was working at Wharf 2 uh, at Circular Key and uh, another pitch which was called uh, MCA at the time, which I don't know even exists anymore.
0: And were there any contemporaries out there with you, any other uh, street performers of any note or that you could name?
1: Yeah, I was, I was brought up with uh, Nick Nicholas, who's a street magician. Mm-hmm. And I was brought up with another guy called Bruce who did Bed of Nails on a Pole. I was brought up with Bike Boy, who does BMX bike tricks and ends his show with his bike on top of a 10-foot pole juggling on top there.
0: And what kind of lessons did you learn on the street? And did any of those lessons transfer into your later performances?
1: Well, yeah, I think street in general is always an interesting place because the theory behind it is that people stop because you want them to, obviously, but people also stop because they want to. So you can go out and make as much noise as you want, try and gather a crowd. But in the end, they're only going to stay and watch if they want to watch you. So that was an interesting kind of psychology or theory for me to get my head around after being in a circus, where I just turn up and I'm on stage and there's a crowd there. In terms of the whole learning of uh, building a crowd and keeping them there, that was the most interesting thing for me to learn within street.
0: Yeah, it seems like if you start out in the street... That when you get to a stage experience where the people are seated and you're not dealing with some of the the outdoor circumstance, the sun or the wind or the weather, that it, it finds it quite much easier because you're like, not that they're trapped, they're certainly not as transitory as a street audience. Was that you know, your totally. experience?
1: Yeah. No, I mean, I I find it really interesting because I find the two things so similar but so different at the same time. Like I said, with within street. People stop because they want to watch you. Whereas within a theater aspect, you, you go on stage and you need to be likable within the first two, three minutes.
0: Mm. So, yeah, so you need to get that immediate connection with the audience. And how do you do that in a stage performance? What do you think the best technique to sort of gain that initial connection with the audience is?
1: Well, I've I've always changed my theories, but I think the biggest one is to, like I said, just to have a likable personality and not be fake. It goes back to kind of acting and things like that. I know that you can always tell whether someone's pretending to be something or they actually are that thing. So the way that I do my show now is just run out and get the whole crowd clapping with upbeat music and just cheering and then get into the show straight away. And that seems to now work for me, whereas go back two years, I used to kind of run out and juggle because I believed that I was advertised as a juggler. The first thing they needed to see was me juggling. Whereas I think the first thing that I do now is much more appropriate because it's just running out with energy. And no one doesn't like energy.
0: That's interesting because when we first started the Raspini Brothers, uh, quite a famous juggler told us, you should come out, establish yourself as jugglers first, and then get into your comedy. So we did that for the first couple of years until we realized that worked for the the other juggler, who was more of a juggler than a comedian. But for us, it was more important to establish ourselves as comedians first and then juggle. So you sort of had that same experience?
1: Yeah, see, I I definitely agree with that. I think, yeah, because within my thing, like I said, it's running out as a comedy character and then it's going into jokes straight away, not into juggling straight away, but it's going into a few jokes straight away. And then it's all just joking about the juggling, but not going, look at me, I'm an amazing juggler. It's just making jokes about myself and about the juggling itself.
0: It's interesting how you can get some advice from somebody, not trying to lead you wrong, but you realize, oh, that applies to them, but not to, to me. Another piece of advice I remember getting from a street performer was to pass the hat before the final trick, because if you wait, people will disperse. And then I realized that this performer Their last trick was to climb a rope, a vertical uh, climb up to a tight rope, and then it would take them a few minutes to get back down. So once again, for them, it was perfect advice. But for us, passing the hat before the final trick seemed really wrong. So for those jugglers out there listening, just because someone gives you advice, you always have to remember it might be good for them, but not necessarily apply to you just a little bit of a, a personal advice just to
1: kind of say something there like i i totally agree with you because the advice that i've been given and advice is something that you can choose to take on or not and for me throughout my life i've kind of taken advice from someone and then someone else has told me the opposite and then the first time that ever happened that just confused the living daylights out of me because i'm like you're telling me to do this but then you're telling me to do that what what do i do and in the end it, it's about finding your grounding and finding yourself and making it work for what you want and what you desire.
0: So you graduated from uh, circus school. You've done a tour with them. You've got a lot of experience performing. You've worked on the street. What would you consider your first solo professional contract?
1: Uh, My first solo professional contract, I went to Japan. uh, And I worked at Haustenbosch, which is a theme park in Japan.
0: Mm, We've heard that before. I think uh, Niels Dunker also talked about Haustenbosch. Oh, that, we talked about Holland, Holland Village. Is that the same place or a different place?
1: Uh, no, it's the, same, it's the same thing. So basically they rebuilt the Netherlands within Japan.
0: <laughs> so you were performing a silent show at that, uh, that time?
1: Uh, I started by doing a silent show and then I learned Japanese uh, and started doing my show in Japanese.
0: How long was the contract?
1: Uh, I was on a three-month contract. I ended up staying there for a year until I had to find a replacement, uh, which was Neil's. Oh, how
0: about that? That's quite uh, quite a good coincidence.
1: And he and even mentioned me in his book. <laughs> oh, yeah,
0: Catching Greatness, the Neil Dunker yes. story. We'll be waiting for the James Booster story. Also, ca- Catching More Greatness, or, or Catching Greatness 2, the, the James Bustark story. <laughs> yeah, we had Neil's on an earlier podcast. He's a good friend of mine. I've been working with him on his comedy. For a couple of years. All right. So that's been a very enjoyable experience for me. Now, how many shows a day would you do out there in, in Holland, in the Hushenbosch theme park? Uh, we
1: did, we did a one stage show a day and then we did two roving spots
0: a day. That sounds pretty easy. And was it a six or seven
1: day a week type of contract? Yeah, it was six days a week and then uh, one day off to go and explore
0: Japan. So, so you got extended for up to for a year. So it was first initially three months, but obviously you were doing a good job and they decided to go for a year. Was there any time during that point where you thought, okay, uh, this is enough? Or was it at the end of a year, you were like, I just can't do this anymore?
1: No, it was just for me, because it was still the, the, towards the start of my career. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to do something different. So... It was time to move on. I I could have stayed there. I could still be working there now. But uh, it was just time for me to change paths and go for something different.
0: And what did you have in mind? Was there a venue or a a career path that you were looking at saying,
1: I want to try that next? As soon as I left circus school, my passion was to get onto cruise ships. That was my life goal. That was the penultimate thing that I could do within my career. So yeah, after I left Japan, it was all about, I flew to the UK and I met up with a comedy juggler over there by the name of Pete Matthews. He started the process of me getting onto cruise ships.
0: So let's talk a little bit about a cruise ship uh, juggler. So how did you even find out there were jugglers on cruise ships? Was that something that was pretty obvious that you had found out early in your career and you said, that's where I want to end up?
1: No, actually, it was uh, my parents went on a cruise. And they came back and they'd met a magician by the name of James Galea who was doing a magic comedy illusion show at the time on the cruises. And they came home and went, you should go and work on cruises. That would be a good career path. And that's how it all came about.
0: So let's talk about cruise ship juggling. What is sort of required to be a good cruise ship juggler? The biggest thing in terms of cruise ships is that lots of material. Uh, Yeah. So like, uh, sometimes as much as 60 or 75 minutes is appropriate.
1: Yes. And like having, having backup sometimes is good as well, because there's so many times on cruise ships now that you miss a port and then the other entertainer can't get on and they need you to do another show as much as you can with cruise ships. Uh, that, that was the biggest thing that got me when I first got onto cruise ships was how much material I needed. So let's say even
0: they contract you for like two 30 minute shows. And then they come to you and say, hey, I know you've done your only contract for two 30-minute shows. Could you do another 15 in the in the farewell show? You want to be able to say yes, don't you?
1: Well, definitely. You, you want to be able to impress them because, I mean, if you said no, then you might get a, a negative report. And the way that the cruise ships work is that the cruise director writes a report on you every performance you do in terms of the – it's marked on three things normally, but the main one being the crowd's reaction.
0: What would be the other two then? If the crowd reaction is one, and you said there's three, what are the other two things you'd be judged on?
1: Uh, the capacity of the crowd. So how full the room is. How full the room is, and just their their thoughts on your show. And what was the third one again? Uh, how appropriate they saw your show for the crowd, or if they liked the comedy, or whether it was over the cuff, or et cetera.
0: And when you're on a cruise ship, how do you sort of gauge that as far as do you try to, try to always keep it pretty squeaky clean or do you find that different audiences can tolerate sort of a higher level of, of mature material?
1: Yeah, I think it really depends because lots of the cruise lines that I work on target a younger demographic. It's families and the like teen, not teenagers, but uh, like 20, mm. say 20 to 45 would be the cruises that i work on whereas when i have done it like cruises on holland america for instance which is targets a much older demographic especially here in australia then i have to make it a bit squeaky clean or a bit more squeaky clean uh whereas i find that within entertainment in general though is that our job is to entertain and if we just went out and did squeaky clean then that's just normal, whereas if you can find that clever part between that line where you're not crossing a line, but you kind of are, that's where I stand within my show on ships now. You always think that you should sort of shoot for like a sitcom
0: level. Like if you watch sitcoms nowadays, like sort of Big Bang Theory or some of the other popular sitcoms, you can kind of see the level that is sort of a general accepted level on network television. It's quite a bit uh, further pushes the envelope than it used to for sure
1: no definitely and just like i said within entertainment i think it's it's partly our job to push the envelope and what some person sees as inappropriate someone else sees as appropriate i mean if they can play south park on tv then they can play south park on stage if that makes sense
0: no of course because like you say they want you to push the envelope but obviously you're using four-letter words or being misogynistic or racist or making fun of religion. They're pretty sensitive about those types of issues from what I've found. But they do like you to be a little bit naughty.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. And the interesting thing is that within, like how you're just saying about the full other words and religion, uh, lots of cruise lines now are actually hiring late night acts who then can do that. Right,
0: Like, like I've been booked on Disney, I'll be going on there in August. And they want a family show, then they want the, what they call an adult show. So they're going to break it up between so that there's something for both demographics on the ship. And what do you think is sort of the best thing about working on ships? And what would you say is the worst thing about working on ships?
1: Uh, the best thing about working on ships for me is I've done it for six or seven years now is stage time. I mean, the more stage time you have as a performer, the more, the more grounded you get and the more you understand your character and the more you understand the the evolution of your show and in what direction it should go, as well as the fact that, I mean, you get to travel the world for free and see amazing destinations. I mean, I've got a cruise coming up where I haven't been to Hawaii before, and I just got a cruise <laughs> on Carnival from Bora Bora to Honolulu. That travel aspect is definitely the best part of the cruising and the, and the stage time. The, the worst part, to be honest, is just the, the, the travel and living in airports.
0: <laughs> yeah, it can be quite stressful, especially if you're traveling with quite a bit of props. The number of times that your props are sort of missing in transit or they arrive quite late and you have to rush to the ship. There's, there's quite a bit of pressure involved with having to travel with so much equipment.
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, I've got one of two, two cases that I take my show in. And then if I need to, because some cruise lines only want you to take one bag, then I have to condense the show down. But interesting that you said, because I'm always reading posts about, about Neils or about Pete Matthews or other jugglers on Facebook who lose their luggage. I mean, Touchwood. I'm trying to find some right now, but I have never lost my luggage. I never lost it. But one time
0: I was in uh, Argentina in that Ushuaia, I think is the is the port there. And literally it came in the last possible flight where I could get my luggage and still make the ship. So I remember one of those mad dashes in the in the cab. Did you travel anything sort of on like a travel carry on that if your bags don't arrive, you still would be able to do something? Is that a good safety measure?
1: I think it is definitely a good safety measure. I mean, I always try and pack my juggling balls at least within my kind of laptop bag in terms of like carry-on. Obviously within my carry-on as well, then I've got my laptop, I've got my iPad with the music for the show, I've got the running sheets and everything like that. So at worst come to worst, I can get on the ship and still do something. But at the same time, I think juggling is definitely the greatest profession I have in terms of ships because I could run around and if I can't juggle clubs, then I could get three baguettes. If I don't have juggling balls, I could go and get fruit if I needed it. If I needed a pole, which I do for my show, then I could use a broom. If I need hoops for my show, which I do just in terms of hula hoops, then normally that's a cruise ship activity is people can – play with a hula hoop at some point within the cruise somewhere whether it be in kids club or here or there so y- y- your whole show is basically there as long as you have the costume the music and the cue sheet
0: sure they got like ping pong balls apples eggs you have to be able to be spontaneous and not be too locked in just in case you have to be able to improvise is a good skill
1: oh definitely and like i said uh, like we said earlier it It's the fact that with being a comedy juggler, the the majority of your show is comedy. So there's so much comedy there already in terms of if you're turning up on stage without a costume, for instance, or without props, that you, you, you know that you have that grounding in terms of being a somewhat comedian to fill in that gap and use a negative to a positive.
0: Well, it's like the modern comedy juggler, for the most part, you might have a stunt, like let's say the stunt where you do a contortion, and you have a pole behind you, and then you spin the two hoops on the pole, that if you were just to do the stunt by itself, it might take five seconds or 10 seconds. But the skill of the comedy juggler is, how do you take that skill and make it a three or four or five minute routine?
1: Oh, totally. And the, 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 the stunt you're talking about, i learned in like an after school session where I caught up with a whole bunch of other jugglers at fruitfly uh, fruit fly circus when I was within it and we were just messing around and I found a pole and then I was like, Oh, let me try this. And then I found two hoops and I never did anything with it for about four or five years. And then as soon as I started working on cruise ships and I needed that extra material, then I wrote that whole routine, which is now six or seven minutes long where it's not even a, a big trick. Like you said, it's just the fact that I kind of worked at how to write a routine that now involves pole dancing and a whole bunch of other things that now made it one of my favorite routines.
0: Well, that's what I like as well. Cause if you're relying purely on the skill of the trick itself to sell the trick, like watch how skillful I am. Well, it usually requires a great deal of practice and on the ships, first of all, you can't always have a good practice space. But you're also, we are dealing with the fact that the ship is moving and there are times that the stage is actually rocking, which is something that's kind of hard to get used to for the first time you get on a ship. Have you ever been on a ship and had it really
1: moving a lot? Yeah, I have. And many performers kind of can't do their show, like you said, because of their limitations. Say it's a magician and they've got illusions and they can roll around and that's dangerous and things like that. Whereas... I've never cancelled a show on a ship because, like you said, I believe that I should be able to work to different environments. And I I like being that comedy juggler that the cruise director knows that I'll always go on stage. Like within P&O Australia, I always get phone calls of, oh, the dancers can't go on tonight. It's too rocky. Can you go on stage? And my answer is yes. I don't even think about it. I just go out and do it. And I, I always tell the cruise director, I go, look, I might need to be a bit shorter or I might need to adapt it. But half the time, that's my plan. And then I run on stage, I get adrenaline, I end up doing the show anyway.
0: That's a good thing for jugglers to realize, and most entertainers, that when they ask you a yes or no question, really all they want to hear is yes. They don't want to hear that, no, I can't do that, I'm not contracted to do that, I didn't bring the props to do that, you can't really ask me to do that because it's not in my contract. That's not really in your best interest. Like if they say, is this ceiling high enough, You never want them to say, you never want to say, well, no, can you raise the ceiling? (laughs) (laughs) uh, They just want to hear, yes, I can do that. Yes, I'm adaptable. Yes, I will fulfill whatever purpose or requirements you ask of me.
1: Oh, totally. Always say yes if you can. It's quite funny with that, though, is that when I've kind of done gigs on ships and on land as well, is that I like, obviously, the stage to look good with lighting and, um, and smoke machines and effects and things like that. But at the same time, when I turn up at venues where that isn't really possible, the amount of times that I've kind of turned up at a venue and the lights are in my eyes and they go, is this okay? But I've realized in my head that's the only option I have. And I know quite a few kind of other performers may, in that situation, walk away from the gig and say, no, it's not possible to do kind of thing. But to me, nothing's impossible. Like If the lights are in your eyes, then just turn away from the lights and juggle in the other direction for that trick.
0: I'm with you because I've never been in a venue where I've said, no, I can't work here. No matter how small it is or how, how difficult the situation is, I'm a guy that's always gonna say yes and try to make it work to the best. And speaking of yes, there's a, there's a situation here where a lot of people say no. And I see that you've been on Australia's Got Talent. And when it comes to America's Got Talent, a lot of performers I know would say no. So what is your feeling about these uh, talent competitions?
1: I think that my like my feeling about them is that if they rang me up today, I would say no. Mm. Um, and that's not even from previous experiences of being on the show like you mentioned. That is just because I think that if I did it now at, at my stage in my career, that it would, again, you've got two choices. It's either going to help you or hurt you I can't take that risk at the point that I'm in my career now if they wanted me to go on and just do a spot and I wasn't being judged then fine if a tv show rang up and said can you come and do a five-minute comedy spot then sure I will go and do that because that is going to help me but you just never know what the judges are going to say anymore and so yeah my experience 2009 I was on Australia's Got Talent
0: you think at a certain point in your career, when you're beginning, you have less to, to lose, you have less of a reputation. It might be good to go on then, but not to go on when you're more established.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's what I, that's my thoughts. But I mean, obviously, everyone's got their own thoughts. I mean, 2009, when I went on, was the perfect time for me. I got to the semifinals. I was one of the first jugglers in Australia to kind of be on the show and it, and it did help me. I'd kind of, after the, I did the show, I'd walk down the street and people would recognize me. I would get phone calls for bookings from doing the show. That was the second year Australia had done the show, I think. And then I, yeah, so I I'd walk down the street and I'd kind of get recognized. I get bookings. I do media interviews. It was honestly the best time for me to do the show as much as there was some Not negative, but there were some comments made by one of the judges, but at the same time, he was the bad. Right. Comment. That was his role was, to be yeah, sort of the. Yeah, it was
0: his role to be bad. Right, so, to be the, the critical one who's like, oh, not a juggler. We had that with uh, David Hasselhoff in the early days of, of Our America's Got Talent. Yes. <laughs> let it be known that he basically hated juggling as if all juggling was the same.
1: If I don't get it wrong as well, um, Ivan Purcell did America's Got Talent. And I think he had a similar experience in terms of them just being a juggler.
0: Yeah. Well, I personally am kind of a big, not a fan of the show, but I encourage anybody here in America to be on the show, simply because there are so few options nowadays. I have some good friends. Their names are the Kamikaze Fireflies, and they were on last year. And when I first contacted them, because I had a friend who was a producer, They were very much like, no, we don't want to be judged. We don't want to come off looking bad. You know, all the things that you hear, people are hesitant. I hear they keep you in a room for nine hours. they don't choose the bathroom, which is not really quite the case, but all these sort of horror stories about the show. And my feeling is, is that it's show business, that sometimes you have to roll the dice. You have to take a chance. And if you're waiting for the perfect opportunity to arise, that opportunity probably will never arise for a juggler anymore. Uh, There is no more Tonight Show where you can get on and do six, seven, eight minutes of just your act, unfortunately. If if anybody's listening out there, my take is that if you have options, great. If you're already established like James is, great. But at a certain point, you have to take a chance and you have to sort of put up with the bad to hope to get something good out of it.
1: I totally agree with that. I think that, like I said, it's my opinion now that I wouldn't do it. But If I ran into anyone, then I would probably tell them to do it because, I mean, at worst, it's not the end of the world. And in the end, it's back to that old kind of saying of any publicity is good publicity. I know there was a a bubble guy on one year, and all the bubbles messed up, but he was on the news all around the world, and it ended up that he does a comedy act with bubbles. (laughs) So It's it's like (laughs) like we have a juggler here, David Diebel,
0: who also does a lot of cruises. And his experience on the show was that he was the only juggler to be X'd off the show simply by describing what he was going to do. Oh wow! He actually actually uses that as part of his introduction. So he sort of turned that negative into a very positive thing. And then speaking about promotion and exposure, I see you have quite a few uh, world records. How did you come up with the idea to set records and how do you feel that's helped you advance your career and could you give us a, a couple examples of the records you have
1: Sure so uh, there's a website online called recordsetter.com because when I was younger I always wanted to break world records and I applied to Guinness and the, the the paperwork and the the costs and everything of doing a Guinness World Record is just crazy So there's two record uh, associations or whatever in the world which is a uh, Guinness World Records which is just obviously primarily sponsored by Guinness. Mm-hmm. And then there's the universal record database or something like that which is also a genuine world record but there's just no sponsorship behind it. So I decided to break the first world record I ever broke was uh, the most hugs in 1 minute. It's the stupid. most hugs. So, the so most hugs. hugging I mean, you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay.
0: No juggling involved. They simply to hug as many different people or do you or do you hug the same person over and over or do they have to be each individual different people?
1: No, so I hug uh, individual different people and i'm pretty sure that the record when i broke it was 55 and i got 70 or something like that it's now been broken again but that was the first one i ever broke and then from doing that and from being really stupid then a radio station picked up on that and then because i put it onto facebook and online and things and then they called me up and said can you come and break a world record on air but Again, along the stupid lines of something that's not really going to do much for anyone. And so I went on to a radio station in Brisbane and broke the world record for the most animal noises guests mm. in one minute. So it was the radio presenter making the animal noises. And I it's see. me going, <laughs> moo, okay, that's a cow. Meow, okay, that's a cat. And then again, from there, then kind of that was put online on their websites and everything like that. And then eventually, I got approached by Channel Seven TV show in Australia, and it's like a—it's uh, called the Daily Edition. It's a—it's a talk show, like a panel of four people at a desk. And so I went on there, and we did a day of filming, of just trying to break the stupidest world records, whether they have to do with juggling or not. One of those ones was uh, the most cans kicked over with a bare foot in ten seconds. Mm. There was—I <laughs> mean, it's all stuff that's going to do so much for my career there's but it's it's getting on tv it's it's showing you in a playful
0: it's sort of being not don't be afraid to be stupid
1: oh exactly silly things exactly and the whole thing for me is that if i hadn't have been going down the path of doing stupid world records then if i if for instance if i wrote to a tv show and i went i'm a juggler i want to come on and i want to break a juggling world record for the longest time to juggle seven balls or whatever then that doesn't sound as interesting as I can kick cans over with my bare foot in 10 seconds if you want me to come on and do that. And we can do this or this or this or this and just fired a whole bunch of ideas off at them. And the big one that we ended up doing for the finale of this TV show was actually really hard. But I, in my head, just pictured it as being really easy, which was juggling five raw eggs while hula hooping Mm. and uh, catching them all clean without breaking the eggs. Uh, I went through about, I don't know, I went through a lot of uh, eggs the day before because I thought it was going to be really easy. And I just ended up driving back to the shop, back to the shop, back to the shop.
0: Well, that sounds, uh, I don't know why you would think that would be easy. I've tried five balls while hula hooping and it's it's quite a difficult stunt so that's a a big one to bite off it's a quite a big one to chew on there
1: yes so yeah that was one of the ones that i've kind of been most impressed with i'm like oh okay so Hmm. um no one can really break that until someone can do six eggs and hula hoop because the world record was the most raw eggs juggled while hula hooping
0: now speaking of television i see here that one of your current projects is a television pilot can you explain what the pilot is about and what your role on it
1: is Sure. I went to the UK for the first time to perform uh, three years ago because my family all moved back and I, I'm the only one left in Australia. And I picked up a manager over there. The TV show uh, idea came about and basically the TV show pilot that we've been filming for the last couple of weeks is a travel show, but a travel show with a difference in terms of its uh variety entertainers trying extreme sports uh, the first episode we filmed at flying trapeze so you've got kind of magicians and you've got a ventriloquist who's a flight attendant and obviously flying trapeze flight attendant mm-hmm. my head they go together so it's, it's probably one of the most randomest tv show ideas but it's gained a lot of interest uh, to be kind of produced from the uk so it's all very exciting at the moment but yeah to to actually summarize the show is is very tricky because it's basically all tv forms mixed together it's a bit of travel it's a bit of adventure it's a bit of variety and but yeah to describe it would be magicians jumping out of planes stabbing cards uh, juggling down a flying fox ventriloquist at your local (laughs) drive-through it's just it's the most random show in the world I'm very excited about it, and I think that the reason it came about was that I'd always seen magic shows on TV, like street magic, like David Blaine and Chris Angel and things like that, and gone, I've never seen a juggler have Mm -hmm. a show, because the thing with magic is that when you walk up to people and you show them a trick, they know that you're showing them a trick, but they don't know what the outcome is going to be, and that's where the magic comes from, whereas with juggling, I can't really just walk up to a random person in the street and go, hey, look, (laughs) Mills Mess. And you don't really get the response. It seems like
0: uh, part of the, the appeal of these street magic shows is they get the crowds freaking out. Like, oh my God, he just walked through that plate glass window. Or how do you make that Coke can uh, whole again? And the response most of us get for juggling, like if you came up to somebody and juggled five clubs, they'd basically be going like, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I wish you weren't doing that right now
1: yeah
0: (laughs) maybe if you really filmed enough people you'd finally get someone who was enthusiastic about it Uh, now when talking about a manager can you kind of tell us what a manager does and and what benefit it's been for you to have a manager
1: the benefit of having a manager has been like astounding for me in terms of the fact that i never have one in australia i never really have the opportunity to have one in australia and i managed to pick one up in the uk uh his name's simon and he is 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 incredible For me, it's the biggest thing about having a manager is that if you have the right one, then it's someone who really believes in you and wants to sell you and wants success. So it was from him that I kind of mentioned the TV idea two, three years ago, and we worked on it for the last three years to get it to the filming stage that it's at now because of contacts that he knows through people, through people, or just people that he knows uh, who were within big production companies and things in the UK who... Were the ones that said, "Okay, go ahead and film a pilot, and then let's see what we can do." But in terms of having a manager for shows, it's amazing. I mean, I look at my calendar now for the UK for this year. Even if I looked at it back in November, and he sells me everywhere. It's really nice because uh, there's always the aspect of having show and business together. And sorry, the two separate things, but they're a word together. But for the business side of it to be controlled by someone else, and for me just to solely be able to put all my energy into the show, is amazing. And I mean, trust me. At the same time, I market myself as well obviously but i just kind of write to him and go oh can we look at doing glastonbury festival and he's like yeah sure i'm going to email them now the fact that he's got that passion within me is that if that was someone in australia to be honest with most managers they wouldn't do it because there's no money for them straight away
0: right there's actually a commitment of
1: yeah of time and effort it's not going to pay off Right away, they have to build something. So for me, it's just having that person that believes in me. And in terms of what a manager does for me, he goes out and actively sells me. Whereas in Australia, I find that uh, I'm listed on probably 150 entertainment websites, but none of them go out, actively sell me. They just wait for the phone to ring and someone goes, I want a juggler. And then they send me an email.
0: It's pretty much the same here. I've been very fortunate in my career as well that we started with a manager quite early in our career for the Raspini Brothers. His name was Joe Gunches. And he had the idea of getting us on television shows and getting us associated with celebrities. So that was his two main priorities. And so that really set us up for our entire career. At a certain point, we left him to work solo or without him. And then my partner sort of took over that role of doing the business, allowing me really to focus on the creative aspect. So freeing yourself up just to be working on the creative part of it and let someone else take care of the business, I think for the right person, if you make the right connection, can be a very positive combination. Okay, so now we talked a little bit about this idea of the variety show sort of combined with a travel show. So sort of saying that the variety skills by itself had to be kind of packaged in a way to be sort of accessible to the general audience. Now I was looking at your blog, and one of the titles is Technology Versus Basic Skills. Can you expound a bit on that and what that
1: means to you? yeah sure so about when i when i'm home uh, and not on cruise ships i work at a local circus school teaching flying trapeze in sydney and a- apart from flying trapeze we also teach the basic skills uh, juggling and things like that and what i've realized over the last couple of years is with the implementation of uh, ipads and iphones and how every kid has one or the other or both all of them is that the basic skills within life being throwing catching kicking are decreasing so when I teach someone to juggle now I'm not teaching them to juggle I'm teaching people aged from five even up just to catch just to cup two hands together and catch a ball which mm. I find totally crazy and there' I've done many kind of media interviews of late about this topic the biggest thing is that people are like oh no but iPads are really good, apparently, for your brain and for coordination and reflexes and that because of the games that you can play on them. I totally agree with that side of it, but at the same time, when I was younger, I didn't have those and I still have those skills. So it's not an important thing, I don't think, to have to learn coordination off an iPad, really. It's all like such a, a blase topic, but it's one that I'm passionate about because I just believe that it may be because over here in Australia, parents have to work more. So they don't get to spend the time with their kids. So it's much easier for them to get home and give their kid an iPad to go to bed with. You've got the apps that read the book to the child. So therefore, the parent can have some time. But uh, yeah, the, that's the basic gist of technology versus basic skills. was just that, like I said, I realized and I ended up doing research and it ends up that within Australia, basic skills and things between six and 15 year olds, I think it was. They did a test in Perth. It's dropped by 30% in terms of basic skills. I even spoke to a radio presenter whose wife works at a university and they brought in juggling, instructor to teach juggling. And again, half of the class who were 20 years old couldn't catch.
0: It's a sad state of affairs. And in the States, we have a lot of sports that because of the potential for injury are being eliminated from the schools, football and gymnastics. It seems like it's a natural evolution for juggling to become a bigger part of the curriculum in schools. Unfortunately, I don't really see juggling catching on, even though there's more access to it. There's more visibility in the, on the Internet and things of that nature through the WJF or other areas people can see juggling. So I don't really see much future for juggling, unfortunately, to sort of take the place of sports, even though I'd like to see that myself.
1: Yeah, you no, know, I'd love to see that. And that that kind of would never be my intention for juggling to take over because I, I kind of like it being a, a niche industry. But at the same time, I just think that it's just it was that technology versus basic skills article was just a call out basically to parents. There's been publishing quite a few things to spend time with their kids and teach them these skills that they're not learning anymore. And I always use juggling as the best example, because whether people are teaching it in schools and things, I I don't really mind about that. It's just more that juggling itself, as you know, is such a brilliant cross trainer for other sports. And I even taught a whole bunch of rugby players in Australia how to juggle, which then improved their hand-eye coordination, because juggling uses both sides of the brain and, and everything that all the jugglers that are listening now would know that that's why I kind of wrote this article and wanted to get this message out there of stop working on your iPads and your phones all the time and kind of get outside. Because that's what I realize now with children is that they're not going out and playing and falling over and hurting themselves and learning not to do that again. They just they just want iPad. So we're sort of ge- basically raising a generation of, of shut-in veals. Well, yeah. <laughs>
0: so they're, they're a little too protected. Go out, get your hands dirty. Parents, take your kids outside. Play a little bit of catch and start learning these basic skills of throwing and catching now so right now i look at your schedule you're you're very fully booked you have a lot of these uh, holiday village type uh, parks and resorts in the uk you have all of your cruises where do you see the future plans where do you see james buster going in the
1: future is this tv thing the, the the ultimate goal now well, the TV thing is definitely one of the main goals for me at the moment, because like I said, when I was younger, my, my biggest goal was to work on cruise ships. I've done that now for six or seven years. And so it was only two years ago that I kind of decided that it was time to move on and keep doing cruises, obviously, because they're, they're a great, reliable kind of income and they're great fun. And I've got many friends on the ships now. But at the same time, it was time for me to kind of put my, not keep all my hands in one basket, if that's the expression. I realized that I was becoming very much cruise ship, cruise ship, cruise ship. And that's all I was doing to the stage where people on land had kind of forgotten who I was because I was just always away on a ship doing a contract. So biggest plan now is to kind of get my name known again within Australia as it kind of already has started to be and within the UK now as well, as that's a new market for me. And The TV thing would be a big thing, but the biggest thing that I kind of want to work on next is actually getting into a theater and doing a show where people will come and pay tickets to get in rather than working in someone else's theater, like a cruise ship or another venue, is to have my own show and try and work out this formula that we've all been trying to work out of how to get bums into seats for a somewhat juggling show.
0: Yeah, that's not really a term we use. Like when you say bums in the seats, you're not talking about hobos.
1: Oh, I putting, totally uh, forgot about the language <laughs> difference. Putting butts in the seats because <laughs> that might be quite easy. Um, yeah, maybe but, offer <laughs> a free lunch or something to go with the uh, with the show. You could get a lot of bums. Probably. But you know what? I mean, if no one turns up, that might be my option. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's always been the case. Is <laughs> and I have a full theater say, anyway. So.
0: Like you say, once you you get someone in a theater or you get someone on a cruise ship, especially if you have an entertaining juggling show, people go, "Oh, I didn't realize I could like juggling so much." You make it fun you make it humorous it's this idea of how you get people to spend their hard-earned cash to come see you totally and i think
1: like i said it's one of those goals that i think lots of us have tried it's just i mean i mean not even just within comedy jugglers or jugglers or whatever but even in terms of magicians i mean it's more the stage that magicians kind of got famous through tv forms and then that's how they be able to do theaters Or it could have worked the other way and they did like fringe festivals like Darren Brown or something in the UK who then got onto TV through that and then is well known and is a known name. But if I could over here, especially in Australia, become and that would be um, that would be the biggest goal would just to become in a way a household name. So if people thought juggling, they thought me.
0: um, Well, look at uh, like Terry Fader on America's Got Talent, the singing ventriloquist. He had a good act before he got on America's Got Talent. But after he got that exposure and became, at least for a little while, a household name, he then signed this long-term contract in Las Vegas. So this goal of becoming sort of well-known, and then whatever you do, because you're well-known, it becomes more accepted. So good luck on that, because that's something a lot of variety acts and jugglers, maybe Penn and Teller have come the closest, sort of the national fame necessary to sort of tour with your own show and to be a, a certainly a headline act in Vegas for many, many years. Oh, totally, yeah. So now speaking of the future as well, since we're drawing to the close of our our podcast, before we started, you said that you were single, and yeah. maybe to mention that you'd be looking for a suitable mate. What is James Bustar looking for in The Ideal Woman?
1: Um, now you've embarrassed me. You put me on the spot. Someone who's single would be great. And, uh, okay, so start by being
0: single, ladies. So start, yeah, start. not only really
1: looking for the
0: uh, the married ladies, not looking for the, uh, the was it Ashley Madison? That's a we, uh, website we have here in the States for married people looking to hook up. I only know that because of uh, um, just sort of my wife's giving me the thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of it. I've never been on it myself. So being single, that's number one. Do they have to learn how? To, do they have to know how to juggle, or is that not really a requirement?
1: No, they can hate juggling. I don't care. But I mean, that, that's an issue because if they hated juggling, they wouldn't be listening to this podcast, would they? So yes, they, they need to love juggling. They need to be female. That's a that's a bonus. Well, I think
0: we've lost a lot there because the amount kind of females <laughs> actually listening to this podcast are probably in the minority. So, but ladies, if you're out there, and I'm speaking to you, the one lady out there, if you're single, you don't have to like juggling. All you have to like is the comedy stylings of Australia's funniest juggler, James Buster. I, I think be, that brings us to the I should, end I should employ
1: you podcast. to do an ad. That was, that was a brilliant ad. I might just uh, <laughs> employ you for so that. Can there, we yeah. find
0: you on the web if people want to look up. Well, of course, we'll put your information. So if people – I see you have lots of videos
1: online. Yeah, there's Any, a whole bunch of uh, videos on YouTube. Website is jamesbuster.com, uh, B-U-S-T-A-R just to be different. Yeah. YouTube, just search the same thing or everything's accessible from the website.
0: Now, anybody listening out there, any final bits of wisdom for someone who wants to go from being a hobby juggler to pursuing juggling as a professional career? Can we finish up with uh, some words of wisdom from James Buster? Sure.
1: The, 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 the wisdom that I would have would just be follow your passion and don't let people push out of the way. And it's not going to be easy, but it's a wonderful ride so take the ride take the risks like we've been talking about in this podcast and just go for it and eventually it will work if you put enough drive and ambition into it then you will go a long way well thanks james and thanks for taking this ride here on the
0: drop everything podcast thank you very much james buster cheers i hope you enjoyed drop everything podcast number 13 lucky number 13 my conversation with the Australian comedy juggler, James Buster. Big thanks to our sponsor, the International Jugglers Association. Information about the International Jugglers Association can be found on their website at juggle.org. If you're interested in sponsoring an upcoming podcast, you can reach me through my email at danjuggle at gmail.com. Also, big thanks to our engineer, Karen Holzman. To all our listeners, remember, drop everything
1: except when you're juggling.